I seem to have always had a talent for taking what I like to do and finding a way of making money at it so I can do it for a living. My name is Louise Newsom, and you're listening to The Makers, brought to you by Trade and Prosper. On this episode, you will meet Ralph Arenzo, one of the founders of Tuttletown Distillery in Gardner, New York, New York's first whiskey distillery since Prohibition. You'll hear the story of how in 2003, Ralph and his partner got this project off the ground and along with a few others in the industry at that time, managed to have laws changed in New York that opened the door to the growth of small distilleries throughout the state. I'm a rivers and mountains kind of guy, generally speaking. So I wanted to move up to where I climbed, but it took a couple of years to find Tuttletown. My goal was to find a piece of property with a house on it and open up a small climbing campground. Got a lot of difficulty from the neighbors who didn't want my crazy raping, pillaging climbers in their neighborhood at night. So they came and told me, we're just gonna stall you until you run out of money and have to sell the place and move away, unquote. And, and they did that. For <laughs> Interesting what they ended up with. Oh yeah, yeah, well, but, well see, this is a good example of you've gotta be careful what you wish for. And they stalled me in municipal process getting permits for over two years. And I had to sell off almost all the property just to hang on to the little bit that I had. After that, I had to finally stop and think, you know, why did I come up here? And I, I didn't come up here to open up a campground and to have this property. I came up here to live up here, make living up here, and be close to the cliffs. I went to the local zoning officer, and I asked him to come walk around the property with me and tell me what I could do to make a living here on my property that I had a right to do that nobody could challenge me from doing because I was so fed up with fighting with everybody for two years. And he said, well, in New York State, if you're in a farm district, which we are, uh, you have a constitutional right to farm, which you can imagine just thrill the heck out of me. (laughs) I didn't want to be a farmer. (laughs) But he also pointed out in the same breath that in New York State, a winery is a farm use. And that got my attention. So I started investigating winery industry in New York. It was strong, but not world-class. It was crowded. There were 128 other wineries at the time in New York. And I just was not that much into wine. You know, I was a Guinness guy, you know, give me a good stout beer and I'm very happy. Um, But- So did you think of a brewery? I didn't think of a brewery, but I realized in the course of, I, I. explored the wine industry to see what the, what the regulatory laws were so that I could see what I was up against uh, and the rest of the industry, what it involved. In the course of it, I discovered there were no distilleries in New York. And in trying to figure out why, in 80 years, nobody built a distillery, I realized that the fee for a distillery permit since the end of Prohibition had been $65,000. So before you made a drop, you had to buy this permit. And uh, upon further investigation, I discovered that the state of New York, the year before I was doing this, had in, installed a new distillery class license called the A1 license. And it was aimed at encouraging junior distilleries to start up, small distilleries. Uh, it capped production at 35,000 gallons a year and lowered the fee from 65,000 down to 1,500 for three years. Massive and difference. boy, did that catch my attention, because nice. I realized nobody knew about this law. So when did this law come into place? 
2002 or 2001, just about when I moved up here. But nobody really knew about it. There was only one other person in the state who knew about it, and he was uh, trying to go through the process of getting his license. And so I started. I started researching. I knew nothing about making alcohol. I mean, zero. I went online, and I found a website called dangerouslabs.com. It's a group of engineers, uh, and they do all these crazy experimental things. And they had a design for how to make a whistling tea kettle into a tabletop, uh, stovetop still. <laughs> so I built it. I still have it. Uh, you know the little revereware dome top chrome with the little black trigger on? Yeah. Turn that into a still. And uh, I would ferment apple cider in my basement and then bring it up and cook it off on the kitchen stove to try to teach myself what was going on inside the still. And in the meantime, I was researching the heck out of it all online and calling everybody. I went to, went to France to uh, the Cognac region and spent a week visiting small farm-based uh, distilleries, Cognac distilleries and brandy distilleries. I went to Normandy and visited Calvados distributors, uh, distilleries rather, because in Normandy, they do a completely different thing with their apples than we ever did here. And they're using a completely different variety of apples than what our grown primarily in the Hudson Valley, which is table apples. Big, fat, juicy, sweet table apples that have very little character, and especially the kind of character that European ciders are made of, and mm. apple brandy, calvados, that sort of thing. And so uh, I came back convinced that a small farm-based distillery would work, particularly when I started researching the tourism traffic through this area. and. Uh, like today, as of this year, there are over a million visitors coming through town. My business partner, Brian Lee, and I decided that the mill was not the appropriate place to put the distillery because it was, first of all, there was no water in the mill. Right. There was very little electricity. It was it's essentially a barn. I mean, you could see daylight through the walls. There was no heat, nothing. And so we decided to put it in the, these two big cinder block buildings here that are much beefier steel in the floors, heavy-duty buildings. And these were here? And they were here. What were they used for? They were used for granaries and workshop yes. rooms and things right. like that. So they're very heavy-duty buildings, and they had water and electricity. And so we decided to build it here. The main driving force for the Farm Distillery Act was the fact that we looked at wineries and breweries, and they cut tasting rooms. They could sell directly to consumers. Someone could take, take a tour and charge somebody for a tour and then give them a sample at the end and maybe sell them a bottle to take home with them. But distillery law had never changed because there were no distilleries. Over the years, the winemakers and the brewers went back to the state and got their tasting rooms put in place. But it's an arduous task. It still is to this day. It took two and a half years to get the law passed. So in the meantime, while you were working on that, we you were, making, were producing yes, under we were the making, First thing we made was a vodka from apples, hmm. because vodka you can sell immediately. Yes. You know, you don't have to wait until yes. it ages. It was 2007 when the big changes happened, right? That and was when the, the law license. came into, the Farm Distillery Act came into effect. And by then we had had our whiskey on the market for two years. And I was distributing it. I was sell literally selling it out of the trunk of my car. And of course, I didn't know a thing about selling whiskey or alcohol. I had to learn it on the way. but. I had behind me the enthusiasm of knowing we were the first ones in 80 years to make whiskey. And so I always had no trouble getting to the owners or the managers or the buyers of any place I walked into once I told them that. 
you were asking people to kind of open up to a whole new mindset. I mean, how did you even know it was good? <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, we didn't. <laughs> we, well, things, and, you know, our rule of thumb is always, well, if you like it and I like it, somebody else is going to like right. it. But That's a good when, place to start. when I first got the first bottles of baby bourbon and I was trying to figure out what to do, I went online and I searched for the best whiskey shop in New York and Linnell Smothers came up. It was Linnell's shop in Red Hook and she was the New York whiskey maven at the time. If, you, if anybody in press or anybody in the business had a question about whiskey, they called Linnell. So I called her and I said, uh, I'm making this bourbon in the Hudson Valley. And after she finished laughing at that notion, she did invite me down. And uh, she, bought the, she tasted it and bought the entire first batch. It was 128 bottles. And they were all 375 milliliter bottles. So they were half bottles. Sold for And four, it was named Hudson Baby Bourbon. Baby Bourbon, yes. I think she sold them for $100 a piece, little half bottles, because it was the first legal whiskey made in New York since Prohibition and the first bourbon ever made in New York. And so once that hit the press, that somebody was making whiskey in New York, we were just overwhelmed with press. Hmm. Now, so at that time, did you have your partner on board? I could not have built it without his skills. And my skills had more to do with uh, going through the regulatory process and the promotion and marketing and advertising. And I, the package design is mine and uh, oddball ideas about what we should do with the whiskey to make it different, but he was the technical brain of this place. Were you climbers together? No, no, I didn't know him. He, I, I met him because he came here and he wanted to buy the mill from me, make artisan flowers and grains and cornmeal to feed the market up and down the Hudson Valley and in Manhattan. So you said, I have a better idea. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I, I had him, he, he wanted to know what it was like. I said, well, go spend a couple of days with the milling crew and see if it suits you, you know? Right. So he did. He spent two days with them and they were blowing grain and doing all of the hard dog work that it takes. And he came back and said, it's not a career change, it's a death sentence. And, and I agreed with him, but before we got away, I, I pegged him as somebody who needed something really interesting and different. And I told him about this idea I had. I said, think about it. So he went home and three days later, I got an email from him and all it said was, okay, let's build a distillery. And that's how we started. it. The Makers is brought to you by Trade and Prosper. Here we share the stories of individuals and businesses that make our communities. We believe in those who are committed to doing well by doing good, using their hands, minds and hearts to create a better place for us all and believe that a little sweat and a lot of sharing turns a community into a populace of prosperity. Trade and Prosper is a forum where those like-minded individuals meet to trade ideas, information, goods and services, as well as build long-lasting relationships that enable them to expand their reach locally and also globally. For more information on our organization and for more podcast episodes, head over to tradeandprosper.com. Follow us on social media for the latest news and events about businesses near you. So where are we standing right now, Ralph? We're standing in the distillery room where we have uh, four stills, a uh, 250-gallon, a 400-gallon, an 800-gallon, and a 500-gallon, which is the thing behind us. Uh, that, this one we actually built here. The others were all from Germany. And right now they're running and they are, they're doing first run. We do two distillations for our whiskey. 
The first run is a stripping run where we take all of the alcohols that have been created by the yeast out and water out of the mash, which is a slurry of grain solids and alcohol and water. And then on the second distillation, we separate from all the variety of alcohols, we separate out the ethyl alcohol, which is what we drink. But the other alcohols are what we call the low alcohols, and they're, for the most part, toxic. We financed the whole thing ourselves, and we built the entire place ourselves. The only thing we did not hire somebody to do, we did not do ourselves, rather, was drill the well. We had to hire a well driller to come in. But we did all of the plumbing and the carpentry work and the electrical work. Brian's career was as an electrical engineer. So he had some engineering skills that I couldn't touch. And thank goodness, because he's, he was responsible for all of the technical advances, uh, implementing the technical advances that we were both coming up with, some of which were harebrained. Uh, it was a period of time when we were thinking about moving all the barrels to agitate the liquid in the barrels. And I said, I'm not moving all those barrels. I mean, a 53-gallon barrel weighs over almost 500 pounds. So I suggested that we get some big, giant subwoofers and we pump heavy rap music into the room for the bass. And so we set up a glass carboy full of water and we put two subwoofers, one on either side, and started playing some dubstep, I think, or something <laughs> through it. And we could see the liquid agitate every time the bass hit. And so the next day, Brian's That's in with mounting subwoofers on the ceiling of the wick house where we stored the barrels. The music thing turned out to be a fabulous public relations coup, having the uh, my son coined the phrase sonic maturation. And we were getting press inquiries from Europe on this, what is this, you know? And they wanted scientific evidence of that. It wasn't a technical scientific study. We were just trying anything we could to speed up production. You know, one of the things that we always joked about that was a great advantage for us was because we didn't know anything, we also didn't know what we weren't supposed to do. And so we were willing to try anything. The entire operation was kept simple because there were only two of us. And if one of us got hurt or sick, you had to be able to, one person had to be able to run the place. And that was what we did. And we both, you know, switched off back and forth on actually being here. Most of the time while Brian was here, he was busy with technical aspects. Mm -hmm. And I was running stills and putting stuff in barrels and bottling and labeling and things like that. And then eventually we both, we were both doing it. And then eventually, as we started having products that were getting more in demand, the world bifurcated a bit. And he focused on the distillery and the distillery operations. And I focused on everything else. He also took care of the books. But I focused on marketing, package design, uh, learning about the state and federal regulations and finding my way through that maze. And I had just had two years of lobbying in Albany and getting to know the State Liquor Authority and the all of the players. So when I went back and said, I want to amend the A1 law to allow us to have a tasting room, ultimately it evolved into a completely different license. Because if we amended the A1 law and allowed that, then it would open the door to out-of-state major producers to come in and do the same thing. And we didn't want, nobody wanted that. The State Liquor Authority wanted it. Ag and Markets didn't want it. And, and neither did we. Uh, so they made it a separate farm-based license, which meant that the A1 license, if we had prohibited out-of-state producers from coming in and taking advantage of that, it would have been a violation of the Commerce Clause. But as a farming operation, it falls under a different set of laws. And so that meant that our products 
were farm products. We were not only uh, using New York raw agricultural materials, but we were leasing land, we were paying for the seed, and we were paying for him to grow it and harvest it, which made it technically under New York law, our crop, which made this a farm, even though we weren't growing anything here. And now uh, in 2017, we had 60,000 visitors. We're, we've been in every major print publication in the country practically, and television network, international press, people coming here, trucks coming here all the time. We had, at one point, we don't anymore, but at one point we had 60 employees. So, you know, that's why I say it's a good example of you gotta be careful what you wish for. When Brian and I would be crying over the bills or, you know, uh, getting close to bankruptcy on a number of occasions, uh, I, I would just simply say, we have no choice. We, everything we have is in this and we cannot give up. Uh, we're un underneath the, ha uh, the uh, auger, which is moving grain from the silo we have outside to the cook tank. And so... And so that's what we're hearing, this noise? We're hearing in the background, the auger. Bourbon is typically corn, rye, and malted barley. We didn't know how to blend the grains together. So he said, let's make a whiskey out of each one and see, then we'll figure out how to blend them together. So we did that, and every time we did, we liked it. So we didn't touch it. So our, now our baby bourbon is 90% corn. Our rye whiskey is 90% rye. Our malt whiskey is 100% malted barley. We lucked out. I mean, to be perfectly honest, in the very beginning, we were very fortunate that our first experiments turned out to be as good as they were. And then we just fine-tune them. You know, in the beginning, as I think for every distiller that starts out, consistency is a major issue. You know, each batch, one batch, it would come out different. Yeah. Not a lot different, but mm. noticeably different. The color might be off a mm. little bit. The flavor was still good, but maybe a little sweeter, maybe not a little sweeter. And at that point, I was simply saying to potential customers, no, it's, it's handmade. I knew you were going to say that. They're never going to be the same twice. <laughs> when we made our relationship with William Grant and they bought the baby bourbon, uh, the Hudson brand from us, they, of course, wanted a little more consistency. Uh, and, and, of course, by then we were also getting, getting much better at it. Our growth was slow in the beginning and very, everything was very mechanical. Uh, labor and everything. And we had almost, the only employee we had for the longest time was my son. And then we brought on a couple of other people and slowly it climbed up. And we made it a point of expanding and growing just behind demand. So we were always short of product. And that actually was another oddball thing that turned out to be in favor. Um, and I would tell retailers, you know, when they would complain about not being able to get product, I'd say, look, you're missing the point. Get yourself a clipboard and a pen, and you put it under the counter. And when someone asks for baby bourbon, you say, it's, it's, not, it's not available right now, but wait a minute, I'll put you on the waiting list. You take the list out from under the counter, write their Absolutely. name and their phone number down. I said, now you will have sold that whole case before it ever comes in the door. <laughs> and it worked like a dream. It made it much more fun to be out there selling. And it was a little bottle. It was a completely different looking bottle from what anyone else was used to seeing. And that got a lot of attention too. In the beginning, our industry contacts said, it'll never work. Nobody will carry that bottle. And just the opposite turned out to be true. It started showing up not only 
at eye level in bars, back bars, because they had, you had to be able to see it. But if there were three bottles of ours stuff up there, somebody would always go, what's that? And that would be our chance to sell. Um, and also, the, uh, the little bottle, every time we got press coverage, and we got a lot of it, and every time the whole craft distillery movement was sh featured in a magazine with a photograph on the cover of all the new whiskeys, ours was the little kid. It had to be in front. So every photograph, we're in very, right in the front of every photograph. So let's go to William Grant. William Grant and his family were the ones who actually put single malt scotch on the market and made it a thing. Before that, almost all scotch whiskey was blended because they would go around and buy up the spirits from all the distilleries and then blend them together into their own. And then William Grant said, nope, we're going to do it a different way. And he and all the way down to, to Charlie Gordon, who, was, who just passed away, who was CEO when we came on board, the, uh, the big man, he spent time on the road just and literally sold it a bottle at a time, traveling all over the world and turned it into what it is now. We didn't reach out. They called us. We got a phone call one day. I, I got a phone call one day from the um, innovations chief in their innovations division and saying that they were looking for an American whiskey to add to their portfolio and, quote, you keep popping up on our radar, unquote. So I said, well, come on up. And I held the phone thinking, oh my God, this is the phone call. This was the phone call. <laughs> Somebody finally noticed us. When was this? In 08, I attribute their noticing us to the trip I made over to Paris. And I have my lifelong friend, Tony Venari, is over there, and I called him. He's not in the alcohol business. And I called him and said, uh, find me the best spirits distributor in Paris and get me an appointment. And he did. And so I flew over, and the two of us went, and he and his stumbling French translated for me. And we walked out with a 75-case order. And they were the biggest spirits distributor in France. And then we spent the next week in Paris hitting the best bars, restaurants, and hotels we could walk into. Places we could never afford to go and buy a drink or have a meal in ourselves. But we walked in and you know, we, we did what we came to call commando tastings. So we just put a bottle in our pocket, walk in, sit at the bar, engage the bartender in a conversation. Say, what, are you oh. do what are you doing here? Oh, we, we make whiskey. We're selling it. Oh, yeah, what whiskey? This whiskey. Boom. <laughs> you want to try it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they would always go get the owner or the manager, and they'd always come out, and we made a sale almost everywhere. We ended up putting in half a dozen of the top places in Paris. And I'm, I'm certain that their field reps started seeing our little bottles up next to the bottles of Glenfiddich and going, what's that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Really? How did those guys get there? Grants come visited. They walked through the whole place. Um, it was extremely primitive. And in the end, they invited us down to the city to their offices, and they wanted to buy the whole place. And we said, you know, we just spent six years, every penny we have, and every hour of our day building this thing and making a brand that you now want to buy. You're not going to want to write a check big enough to convince us to walk away because we're so primitive. I mean, it's nothing here. And uh, they said, yeah, you're right. It's not worth the kind of money you, know, you would want. And so instead, we offered to sell them the Hudson brand. And then we kept the exclusive right to produce it. And so that gave us another round of international press because we were the first American craft brand to be picked up by a major house. And suddenly, we were everywhere.
Thank you for joining me this week on The Makers, brought to you by Trade and Prosper. Follow us on your preferred listening channel for new episodes released every Monday. Tune in next week for a conversation with Celeste Simone, comedian, singer, director, and coach based out of Manhattan and Nyack, New York.